This is the DuPont Television Network. The question really is, which candidate and which party can meet the problems that the United States is going to face in the 60s? The warning that I've received that the brown asset is not specifically too good. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. And I would never choose to live the rest of my life surrounded by pigs like the Hello, I'm James Garner. Please drive under 55. If we don't, there may not be enough gas for any of us. Oh, no, not you, kid. Look, I really can't talk to you, okay? This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? What, what is internet anyway? Allison, can you explain what internet is? Death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. It would be interesting to conduct a quick straw poll to see just what sort of name recognition Patty Hearst gets these days. I suspect that people under, say, age 45 might know the name, but have no idea who she is, unless they happen to be John Waters fans and recognize her name from the credits. And even then, they would have no idea who Tanya was, and would have had scant knowledge of Patty slash Tanya's headline-grabbing life in the 1970s. We'll see if CNN's special causes the needle to move on that in any way. As it is, I happen to be just the right age for Patty Hearst to be immortalized, to be tattooed into my eyelids, and hardwired into the same memory bank as Santa Claus, Mr. Rogers, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. You see, I was seven when Patty Hearst was kidnapped on that pleasant February 4th, 1974 evening. Just the right age when a kid's ears are open to everything new, and whatever is in heavy rotation in the news cycle on the car radio on the way to school gets permanently etched into the wet cement of your developing brain pan. For me, the timeline of current events begins with the energy crisis, Angolan guerrillas, and Patricia Hearst, because these were the topics in heavy rotation in the news back in early February 1974, which is the time when I first became aware of what news actually was. Now, the Patty Hearst saga went on for months and took one bizarre turn after another, playing out like a Faye Dunaway script that dutifully hit on all the touchstones of the counterculture era, two parts Bonnie Clyde shoot 'em up and one part Chinatown mentally and physically abused rich girl. It all starts with the rebelliousness of young Patty herself. Patty was the middle child in a family of five daughters. She was described as very bright, very pretty, aloof from her siblings, favored by her father for her precociousness, and at constant loggerheads with her more conservative mother. The 60s counterculture really seemed to be all about the middle child acting out. And Patty was acting out all right, getting herself kicked out of Catholic school, and then promptly beginning a relationship with Stephen Weed, her math tutor at the new high school when he was 23 and she was just 16, much to the chagrin of both her parents. Even that guy's name, Weed, was straight out of the counterculture. But while Stephen Weed may have seemed cool to the sheltered private school girls like Patty in affluent Hillsboro, California, he came across as a bit of a milquetoast to the general public, especially compared to the crowd Patty would soon find herself running with. 
After more teenage rebellion and more parental defiance, Patty eventually enrolled at UC Berkeley, probably helped by the fact that her mother was a UC regent and that there are several Hearst buildings on campus named after her forebears. On the other hand, the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst could have gone to any school in the world. And the UC Berkeley of the early 70s was not the UC Berkeley it is today. For one thing, it was still tuition-free for California residents. Nowadays, it's about $14,000 a year if you're in-state and $42,000 if you're out-of-state. But more importantly, Berkeley was still Berkeley when Patty enrolled back in 1973. It was the ultimate epicenter of student radicalism and counterculturalism and everything else. So for Patty to choose UC Berkeley was a statement in itself. Kind of like hooking up with a 23-year-old Stephen Weed as a boyfriend before she was old enough to drive. And when Patty went off to Berkeley, Weed went with her. They lived together in an apartment on Benvenue Avenue, near the south side of campus. I happened to ride by this apartment building every day on my bike. And if you didn't know beforehand, you'd never guess that there was any special history to it. For one thing, the building is kind of out of place. It's one of those 70s pseudo-ski chalet buildings, festooned with brown wooden shingles on the exterior, but just a generic mid-century apartment on the interior. It's kind of more of an L.A. thing than a Bay Area thing, which is why it seems out of place. And to my estimation, in 1973, that would have been a brand new, kind of cool building. By L.A. standards. Now, half a century later, it's still going strong. Four units, all students, and from what I can tell, no particular awareness of Patty Hearst or of this building's significance. I've actually ridden by there at night between 9 and 10 p.m. on February 4th, the anniversary of the kidnapping, over a few different years. And you could hear a pin drop. There's nobody there marking the occasion. So this one-bedroom apartment that they shared was, would probably be slumming it by era standards. But that was the whole point. This was Berkeley in the 70s. Patty majored in art history, and Stephen was a graduate student in philosophy. For some reason, this reminds me of something I read on a Hillary Clinton website, talking about the summer that she interned at an Oakland law firm, when she and Bill were still dating but not married. So for that summer, they rented an apartment in Berkeley, not at all far from Stephen and Patty's apartment. This would have been maybe the summer of 1971. And as the website describes it, while Hillary worked at the law firm, Bill spent his days around campus in People's Park, socializing with the youthful community. That might have been the best summer of his life. Like Bill Clinton before them, Patty and Stephen eagerly took in the Berkeley culture around them, which apparently included some recreational acid and attendance at protest meetings where the Hearst legacy was not exactly held in high esteem. This may have been the 70s, but some things were still done the old-fashioned way, and Weed and Hearst announced their engagement on December 19th, 1973. In June of the following year, Patricia Hearst would become Mrs. Stephen Weed. Meanwhile, in a safe house not too far away from Patty and Stephen's place, news of the engagement reached a different crowd, 
who called themselves the Symbionese Liberation Army, otherwise known as the SLA. Like the Manson family, the SLA represented a grim, blood-soaked chapter of the 60s counterculture. Like the Manson family, the group's appeal rested on the leadership charisma of one central figure who honed his people skills in prison and was a master at getting others to do his bidding for him. And like the Manson family, the transition from prison into mainstream society happened in the unlikely town of Berkeley, California. It usually surprises people to hear that Manson got his start in Berkeley, and it should. By 1967, Manson was in the seventh year of a 10-year prison sentence. He was only 33 years old, and this was already his second stint in prison as an adult. He was locked up in 1960, and for good behavior or whatever reason, they were going to release him in 1967, a few years early. Now, while Charlie was locked away behind bars, the world outside had changed 180 degrees. He did catch wind of it a little bit behind bars. Back in 1961 or two, he got one of the inmates to teach him guitar, which is something you do to pass the time in prison, and makes the other inmates like you. And in 1964, when Beatlemania took off across the world, Charlie got wind of it in prison, and he took an immediate liking to the Beatles' music. And if his version of history is to be believed, he understood that the Beatles represented something brand new happening out there. But what Charlie saw when he was released on parole in the town of Berkeley, California, in February of 1967, was way beyond anything he could have fathomed while listening to the Beatles behind bars. The Bay Area was full-on summer-of-love counterculture. That meant there was acid, long hair, groovy clothing, free love, psychedelic music, and you name it. When Charlie went away in 1960, it was still the Eisenhower years. Men wore gray flannel suits, and women wore dresses. When he got out, he saw men wearing bright, billowy costumes, and women walking around in jeans and army jackets. You could say it blew his mind. But it didn't take Charlie long at all to go back to his old ways of pimping, which was something he learned in prison the first time, and what he went back to jail for the second time. On the streets of Berkeley, it didn't take long at all before Manson plied his trade and charmed his way into the apartment of a 23-year-old woman who worked as a clerk at the university. Soon, Manson began moving among the lost souls, the runaways, and the drug casualties who were wandering around Telegraph Avenue and the Berkeley campus at the time. And he began moving them into the apartment that he now shared. But as spring and then summer arrived in 1967, Manson soon found his natural forte across the bay, ministering to the bumper crop of teenage runaways on Haight Street during what was already known worldwide as the Summer of Love. That was Manson. By 1968, he and his family, as they called it, moved down to L.A. so Charlie could cash in on the magic of the Summer of Love and get a record deal. And they got pretty close pretty fast. His collaborations with Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and his contact with Terry Melcher, and even the positive review he got from Neil Young, are the stuff of history. But by 1969, it was mass murder. And by 1970, Manson and much of the family were locked away for life. 
A few years later, another organization was getting started in Berkeley. That was the SLA. The SLA was formed by a man named Donald DeFries, an escapee from Soledad Prison who found refuge among the radical commune culture in Berkeley. While Manson's power was based on his control of a loyal cadre of high school-aged women, not men, just women, DeFries's power base was actually a loyal cadre of college-educated women. The story of the Symbionese Liberation Army is one of those stories that almost seems too weird to be true. In fact, there are people who say that Donald DeFries didn't escape from prison, but was released from prison by the CIA in order to spread chaos in the counterculture. People said the same thing about Manson, but in the case of Donald DeFries, there are so many strange, kind of inexplicable circumstances that there is good reason to be skeptical of the official version. But that story is way beyond the purview of this podcast. We're going to stick with the established narrative for now. But it is worth looking into, either starting with the David Talbot book, Season of the Witch, or with some of the Paul Krasner material available online, and then you can take it from there. But for the purposes of our discussion today, let's just say that the SLA was one of those only-in-the-70s cults that seemed to exist exclusively in Dirty Harry movies or Streets of San Francisco episodes about the psychotic hippies and their nefarious plans for America's youth. When you see peaceful UC Berkeley now, it's hard to fathom the level of radicalism that existed on the campus 40-odd years ago. Let's not forget that UC Berkeley is, after all, ground zero in the campus free speech movement, which kicked off in late 1964 when students and community members surrounded a police car on campus to prevent an arrested pamphleteer from being driven off into custody. A large crowd gathered in peaceful resistance, and several of them took turns stepping onto the roof of the police car and using it as a makeshift podium for addressing the assembled crowd. There's footage of that online. And what's noteworthy about that event in hindsight was how each student carefully removed his or her shoes before climbing on top of the police car in order to avoid damaging it. The small act of instinctive consideration served as a place marker for just how far the student movement would stray into violence and confrontationalism in the coming months and years. Most of that protesting centered on the Vietnam War, and it came to a head in spring 1970 with the killing of four students at Kent State and two others at Jackson State. By that point, the protests had largely achieved their goals. The draft was being phased out. America's presence in Vietnam was being phased out and the voting age was being lowered from 21 to 18. So, whereas in 1968, the overwhelming majority of college students was too young to vote, by 1972, the overwhelming majority of college students would be able to vote. So by the early 70s then, most of the anti-war protesting had died down. And in the hot spots of social justice activism like Berkeley, people's interests turned to prisons. This was the time and place of Angela Davis and the Soledad brothers. Prisons were viewed as facilities of state-sanctioned Jim Crow, where racist lawmen used violence to keep black males unjustly subjugated. Like the corrupt police forces a decade earlier in the Deep South, 
These prisons were thought to be in need of exposure to sunlight and reform. Berkeley activists would volunteer to go tutor prisoners, but in reality, they were entering the prisons to get ministered to by popular liberation theologists who happened to be incarcerated. And so it was, according to the official narrative, that Donald DeFries was able to escape Soledad with the aid of accomplices and find no shortage of safe houses in Berkeley, and in fact have the wherewithal to start up a movement of his own while on the run and in hiding. The SLA made its bones in November of 1973 with the ambush killing of Marcus Foster, Oakland's first black school superintendent. After the arrests of two SLA members for the crime, DeFries wanted the movement to kidnap a high-valued target to barter for the release of their comrades with. And by the way, from here on out, Donald DeFries is going to be referred to primarily by his nom de guerre of Sin Q. As an aside, changing your name from Donald DeFries to Sin Q seems kind of like gilding the lily. What could be a cooler outlaw name than Donald DeFries, right? I could understand if you're Ernesto Guevara and you want to be Che, or if you're Patty Hearst and you want to be Tanya. But if you're Donald DeFries, do you really need to be Sin Q? Anyway, this brings us back to the Hearst-Weed engagement. The Hearst-Weed engagement, along with the couple's Benvenue Street address, had been announced in the San Francisco Chronicle towards the end of 1973. The publicized engagement is what gave the group the idea to kidnap Patty. That apartment, which by the way is 2603 Benvenue Avenue, in case you're interested, by the corner of Parker, turned out to be not far at all from the SLA hideout. The SLA member put in charge of surveilling Patty was surprised to find that the young heiress actually attended the same sort of protest meetings they did, and that she was perhaps not the capitalist pig that they had imagined. Either way, sometime between 8.30 and 9 p.m. on the evening of February 4, 1974, members of the SLA knocked on the door of the Benvenue apartment, under the guise that they were having car trouble and needed to use the phone. Once the door was opened, they quickly overpowered Stephen Weed, and beat him with a wine bottle before tying him up, along with a neighbor who had heard the commotion and came down to help. Patty Hurst, meanwhile, was nabbed and stuffed into the trunk of a waiting car that sped off into the night. Little could the SLA have imagined what sort of publicity bonanza they had created for themselves. For the period between the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby and the OJ trial, the Patty Hearst kidnapping was the crime of the century. In those tense days after news of the kidnapping surfaced, and nobody was sure if Patty Hearst was even still alive, a media camp was set up in front of the Hearst house in Hillsborough. Reporters and camera crews set up a curbside camp in front of the Hearst house on West San Inez Avenue and waited round the clock for announcements from the Hearst family, who were ensconced inside the house that was clearly visible through the gate. Now, I have to tell you, I've been by this house. And while it is a nice piece of property, by Hearst standards, it seems kind of just okay. It's definitely no Hearst Castle. It's in the flats of Hillsboro, as opposed to the hills. And it's just a couple of blocks up from the intersection of El Camino. That's El Camino Real, 
which is the busy working-class artery that stretches all the way from San Jose up to South San Francisco. And on this narrow, dusty shoulder, between the street and the front gate, the place where you would put your recycling bins on the curb for pickup, this spontaneous gathering of TV and print correspondence waited. It was the first example of a media camp in the television era. And the public was enthralled. What finally emerged was a voice recording of Patty, sounding like a classic kidnap victim, imploring her father to cooperate with her captor's demands. By this time, it must have dawned on the ragtag SLA that they were now the biggest story in the world, and they could use it to publicize their cause or deliver any message they wanted to. So one of their first demands was that Patty's father, Randy Hurst, spend several million dollars to provide food to the Bay Area's poor, a demand with which he hastily complied, or at least tried to. The SLA was saying things like Randy Hurst was committing crimes against the people, that's a quote, and that he needed to atone for his sins. A lot of liberation theology was being put forth by the SLA. You have to imagine, this was the kind of community food drive that groups like the Black Panthers were normally associated with. And Randy Hurst, liberal Republican, had to show that he was down with the cause. The SLA generally made their communications public by sending tapes to a local Berkeley community radio station called KPFA, which is one of the flagship left-wing radio stations that still broadcast today. But now that they had the headlines and the promise to be bankrolled by millions of Hearst dollars, they were a major player on the scene. And they needed people who could act as go-betweens between them and their underground safe houses and the straight world of the Hearsts and city officials. The organization that Hearst set up at the behest of the SLA was called PIN, short for People in Need. In one of the strange episodes of intersectionality that seemed to define these strange times, a doctor's wife from the conservative Bay Area suburb of Danville went to work as a volunteer bookkeeper for PIN. But she did a lot more. When Patty was kidnapped in February 1974, Sarah Jane Moore was a middle-aged doctor's wife in the quiet, upscale Bay Area suburb of Danville. The program set up by Hearst, PIN, was staffed by a hodgepodge of local minority activists, militant SLA sympathizers, wealthy housewives, and idealistic grad students. Into this mix stepped Sarah Jane Moore, who became PIN's accountant as well as its public liaison officer in charge of issuing press releases a position that gave her instant name recognition in the local press of the Bay Area. Moore's enthusiasm for the cause, and her apparent ability to work both in the straight world and with the radicals, quickly brought her to the attention of everyone from Randolph Hearst himself to the FBI. Hearst was desperate for any news he could get about his daughter, and hoped that Moore's apparent street cred with the SLA could garner some inside information. The FBI saw the same sort of potential in Moore, and they recruited her as an FBI informant. But Moore had a larger story, of which the FBI apparently wasn't aware. Before settling down with her husband in Danville, Moore had already been divorced twice and had abandoned her previous children to be raised by her own parents. In actuality, by the time Moore became the PIN accountant, her most recent marriage had already fallen apart 
and she had relocated to San Francisco's Mission District to be closer to the area's radical politics. Moore's lifetime of shapeshifting seemed to stem from a narcissistic desire to be the center of attention wherever she went, and she enjoyed basking in hero status as the point person for Pin with the straight world. Over the course of the next few weeks and months, the Patty Hearst saga would move on to other places. But Sarah Jane Moore, apparently, still wanted some of the spotlight. And so it was that the following year, on September 22, 1975, Sarah Jane Moore waited for President Gerald Ford to step out of the St. Francis Hotel. And from a distance of 40 feet away, she leveled a handgun at the president and fired a single shot, which missed. When she realized she missed, she raised her arm for another shot, but she was stopped by a former Marine named Oliver Sippel, who dove towards her and grabbed her arm, causing the bullet to ricochet and hit a 42-year-old taxi driver also in the crowd, who survived. Now, Oliver Sippel was quickly hailed as a hero who was commended by the Secret Service and sought out for interviews by the local media, who noted his status as a former Marine in these times when Vietnam acrimony was still pretty high. What they didn't know about Oliver Sippel, and what his family didn't know, was that he was gay. Sippel was open about his orientation among members of the San Francisco gay community, but it was a secret from his family and his employer, and he didn't want the details of his personal life being made public. But he was actually outed by two gay men, One was the head of a gay activist group called the Lavender Panthers, and the other was Harvey Milk, who was a friend of Sippel's and whose campaign for city council Sippel had worked for. On the subject of whether Sippel should be outed, Harvey Milk allegedly had this to say to a friend. It's too good an opportunity not to. For once, we can show that gays do heroic things, not just all that caca about molesting children and hanging out in bathrooms. After the outing, there was no White House invitation for Sippel, and not even a commendation. Harvey Milk made a fuss about that, too. And eventually, a few weeks later, Sippel did receive a brief note of thanks. In the days after the assassination attempt, Sippel was besieged by reporters, and so were members of his family. And his mother publicly disowned him. Sippel died a broken man in 1989 at the age of 47. And by the way, if you need a reminder of just how crazy the early 70s were, Sarah Jane Moore's attempt on Gerald Ford's life was the second one that month. The first attempt had come 17 days earlier in Sacramento, California, when a woman who was dressed in a nun-like outfit pointed a gun at the president and said something about the plight of the Redwoods. She was stopped before she could fire off a shot. That woman, of course, was Squeaky Fromm, member of Charlie Manson's family and one of his earliest disciples. She had moved to San Francisco to be closer to Charlie in his prison. And from his prison cell, Charlie wasn't quite done with the idea of starting the revolution yet. He saw that in the 70s, activism was taking on a more environmental aspect. So he penned something about cosmic priestesses coming here from other worlds to save Mother Nature from the ravages of man. And it didn't take long for those words to reach Squeaky Fromm's ears before she knew what her instructions were. 
These two assassination attempts, which are now largely overlooked, remind us of just how strange and turbulent the 70s really were. By 1975, the U.S. was already out of Vietnam. The draft was over. And even Richard Nixon himself had resigned from the White House in disgrace. But that didn't stop these two would-be assassins and products of the counterculture from foisting themselves onto the scene with guns pointed in 1975. In the 60s, when you think about John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy, the lone gunman spelled tragedy. In the 70s, it was more like farce. And now, let's get back to Patty's story. So, after they abducted Patty Hearst, the way the SLA communicated with the outside world was in a series of communiques, a series of tape recordings they made, that they would then either mail to or drop off at the studios of KPFA, which is a long-standing community radio station in Berkeley. That's still there today. It's right across the street from Trader Joe's on Martin Luther King Boulevard. Thanks to the internet, We can listen to these communiques online anytime we want. And since this is a podcast, we can go ahead and just play these tapes rather than talk about them. They're interesting to listen to, and kind of captivating. A lot of the SLA members made their own communiques over the course of the time, but it's the Patty Hearst tapes that generate by far the most interest. For one thing, she is their celebrity prisoner of war. But the other thing is that listening to her voice is kind of hypnotizing, and not at all unpleasant. She speaks in this whispery, well-enunciated voice that some would call the rich girl's voice. And it harkens back to a time in TV and movies when the actresses on screen would always enunciate very properly, even though by this time it was the post-60s society and people were talking a lot more slangy, especially college students. But Patty has the airy voice of an heiress. And it's hard not to admire her composure, considering the ordeal she just went through, and is still going through. The first thing we're going to listen to is excerpts from what they call the first communique. This was an audio recording that Patty made three days after she was kidnapped. She was a 19-year-old girl. They abducted her from her house, using weapons and screaming out very scary militaristic commands. And as they tried to stuff her in the trunk of the getaway car, she actually managed to crawl away and crawl back towards her house. So they had to grab her again and throw her in the trunk. And then they tied her up and put a hood over her and drove her from one safe house to another and threw her in the closet. And then they basically said, make this tape if you want to live. And here it is. Before we roll it, here's a few things to listen for. You'll notice that she starts off the tape by saying, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. And then she mentions Stephen Weed right away and said she heard the news reports and she's glad he's fine. She says, I just want to get out of here and see everyone again and be back with Steve, her fiancé, after all. 
Later again, she expresses empathy about how hard the news of her kidnapping must be on her parents. And she repeats that she just wants to get home quick. She says that she's not a kidnap victim, but rather a prisoner of war, just as the other two SLA members being held in jail for the Marcus Foster shooting are prisoners of war. No doubt the SLA told her to say that. And she's definitely channeling their script when she says in the most lifeless voice possible that the SLA has ideological ties with the IRA, the people's struggle in the Philippines, and the socialist people in Puerto Rico. And at this point, she's probably channeling the SLA fears more than her own when she warns against the police doing something violent and crazy, like raiding the SLA hideout and shooting it up in a hail of bullets. Let's roll the tape. Mom, Dad, I'm okay. Um, I, I had a few scrapes and stuff, but um, they washed them up and they're getting okay. And I caught a cold, but they're giving me pills for it. And so um, I'm not being starved or beaten or unnecessarily frightened. Um... I've heard some press reports, and so I know that Steve and all the neighbors are okay, and that no one was really hurt. And uh, I also know that the SLA members here are very upset about press distortions of what's been happening. I'm kept blindfolded, usually, so that I can't identify anyone. Um, my hands are, are often tied, but not, I'm, generally, I'm, they're not, and, uh, um, I'm not gagged or anything, I'm, and I'm comfortable, and, uh, I think you can tell that I'm not really terrified or anything, no, I'm okay. I was very upset, though, to hear about um, the police rushing in on that house in Oakland. And I was just really glad that I wasn't there. And I would appreciate it if, um, if everyone would just calm down and not try to find me and not be making identifications because you know, they're not only endangering me, but they're endangering themselves. I'm with a combat unit that's armed with automatic weapons and um, there's also a medical team here and um, there's no way that I will be released until they let me go so it wouldn't do any good for somebody to come in here and try to get me out by force these people aren't just a bunch of nuts. And they've been really honest with me, but um, they're perfectly willing to die for what they're doing. I want to get out of here, but I, the only way I'm going to is if we do it their way. And I just hope that you'll do what they say, Dad, and just do it quickly. I've been stopping and starting this tape myself t- so that I can collect my thoughts. That's, that's why there's so many stops in it. I'm, I'm a 
I'm not being forced to say any of this. Um, I, I think it's really important that you take their request very seriously about um, not arresting any other SLA members and, and about following their good faith request to the letter. Um, I just want to get out of here and see everyone again and, and be back with Steve. The SLA is, <clears throat> is very interested in seeing how, how you're taking this, Dad, and they want to make sure that you are are really serious and, and listening to what they're saying. Um, and they think that you've been taking this whole thing a lot more seriously than the police and the, the FBI and other federal people have been taking it. And uh, it seems to be getting to the point where they're not worried about you so much as they're worrying about other people, or, or at least I am. It's, um, it's really up to you to make sure that these people don't, don't jeopardize my life by charging in and doing stupid things. I heard that Mom was really upset, and and that all, everybody was at home, and, and I mean, I hope that this puts you a little bit at ease, so that, and that you know that I, that I really, that I really am all right. Um, I just hope I can get back to everybody really soon. The SLA has ideological ties with the IRA, the people's struggle in the Philippines and the socialist people in um, Puerto Rico and their struggle for independence. And they consider themselves to be soldiers who are fighting and aiding these people. I am a prisoner of war, and so are the two men in San Quentin. I'm being treated in accordance with the Geneva Convention, one of the conditions being that I'm not being tried for crimes, which I'm not responsible for. I'm here because I'm a member of a ruling class family, and I think you can begin to see the analogy that the people in San the two men in San Quentin are being held and and are going to be tried simply because they are members of the SLA and not because they've done anything. You're being told this so that um, you'll understand why I was 
kidnapped. Um, and so that you'll understand that whatever happens to the two prisoners is going to happen to me. You have to understand that I am held to be innocent the same way that two men in San Quentin are innocent. That they are simply members of a group and are, had not actually done anything themselves to warrant their arrest. They apparently were part of an intelligence unit and have never executed anyone themselves. The SLA has declared war against the government and it's important that you understand that this that they know what they're doing and that they understand what their actions mean. And that you realize that this is not considered by them to be just a simple kidnapping. And that you don't treat it that way and say, oh, well, I don't know why she was taken. I mean, I'm telling you now why this happened so that you'll know and so that you'll have something to use some knowledge to try to get me out of here. If you can get the food thing organized before the 19th, then that's okay, and it would just speed up my release. Um, today's Friday the 8th, and in Kuwait, the commandos negotiated the release of their hostages and they left the country. Bye. In full disclosure, I actually edited out a couple of minutes from the tape just to try to make it a little tighter. And going through the recording and seeking out the natural stopping and starting points for where good places to edit would be, I got a pretty good feel for Patty's cadences and her inflections. It started to become a little more apparent where she was using her words and where she was reading from a script they had written for her. It's notable just how much she's really speaking directly to her father throughout the tape. And it's hard to say how much of that is the SLA and how much of that is Patty. Clearly, the SLA sees him as their go-between with the authorities, and maybe as a bit of a cash cow that they can milk too. You heard at the end of the tape there, Patty mentioning the good faith gesture her father was expected to do, and how the sooner he complies, the sooner she'll be able to come home. But they also made her read a couple of statements about her fate being tied to the fates of the two SLA men being held in San Quentin. Whatever happens to them, happens to her. It kind of makes you wonder what page the Symbionese Liberation Army was really on. They were correct to think that they could get Randy Hurst to do things they wanted in exchange for promises of his daughter's safety. But did they really think he could get the judicial system to release the two SLA prisoners from San Quentin? They seemed to realize that the government wasn't going to respond favorably to extortion the way a citizen like Hurst would. Maybe they thought that having Patty describe them as prisoners of war, and herself as a prisoner of war too, would somehow unblock the impasse. America had just ended its long, acrimonious participation in the Vietnam War. 
That was the cause that had energized the radical and violent left in the first place. And as of the signing of the Paris Peace Accords in 1973, that bitter, bloody war was finally over for America. And the final act that made it official for the people on the home front was seeing the last prisoners of war, people like John McCain, coming home as part of the agreement. It was one of the top news stories throughout 1973 when the SLA began planning their kidnapping. Maybe they were thinking that what's good for the Viet Cong is good for the SLA. So, Patty became their prisoner of war. But, having Patty as a hostage is what they hoped would keep the FBI and police from coming in and rooting them out by force. So, is she a prisoner of war? Or is she a hostage? You get both points of view in this first communique. When you think through to the end game, it seems like the SLA would have had to have known that Patty was their only bargaining chip, and that once they gave her up, they had nothing, and could be hunted down with impunity. Having a hostage bought them time, and having a prisoner of war gave them the hope of an honorable exchange of prisoners at some point down the road. In the meantime, Randy Hurst's good faith gesture might not buy Patty's freedom, but it would ensure that she was treated better than she might otherwise be. As we listen to the next communique, Patty sounds a little less shell-shocked, and she's telling her father not to sweat the details about the good faith gesture. The SLA had initially issued a grandiose demand that Hearst feed all the poor children of California, which, if taken literally, would have cost magnitudes more than Hearst was actually worth. So, Patty's quick to emphasize that whatever he can do will be fine, as long as he does something. She's also quick to re-emphasize that it would be a really bad idea for the police or FBI to initiate a bloodbath. That she is, in fact, a prisoner of war, being held in accordance with the Geneva Conventions, and that her life is not in imminent danger, so everyone should just relax and not get any crazy ideas about raiding the SLA's hideout or anything. Let's roll the tape. Dad, Mom, I'm making this tape to uh, let you know that I'm still okay and to explain a few things, I hope. Um, first, about the good faith gesture. There was some misunderstanding about that and um, you should just do what you can. I mean, they understand that that you want to meet their demands and that uh, it was never intended that you feed the whole state. Um, so whatever you come up with basically is okay. And just do it as fast as you can and everything's, everything will be fine. Um, also, I would like to emphasize that I am alive and that I am well and that uh, in spite of what certain tape experts seem to think, I am... am <laughs> I mean, I'm fine, and uh, it's really depressing, though, to hear people talk about me like I'm dead. You know, I just, I can't explain what that's like. It begins to convince other people that maybe I am dead, and, uh, and when everybody is convinced that I am dead, well, then it gives the FBI an excuse to come in here and try to pull me out, and uh, I'm sure that Mr. Bates understands that... Uh, if the FBI has to come in and get me out by force, that they won't have time to dis 
decide who not to kill. They'll just have to kill everyone. And, um, you know, I don't particularly want to die that way. Um, and so I, I hope he will um, realize that everything is okay and that, um, you know, just to back off for a while, there'll be plenty of time for investigating later. The SLA is also very annoyed about attempts by the press and by authorities to turn this into a racial issue. It's not. This is a political issue, and this is a political action that they've taken. And anyone who really reads the stated objectives of the SLA can see very clearly that this is not a racial thing. And... Uh, I hope there won't be any more confusion about that. Turn over my notes here, so. Um, also, since I am an example, and it's really important that everybody understand that, you know, I am an example and a warning. And because of this, it's very important to the SLA that I return safely. And uh, so people should should stop acting like I'm dead. and. Mom should get out of her black dress. That doesn't help at all. I wish you'd try to understand the position that I'm in. I mean, I'm right in the middle, and I have to depend on what all other, all kinds of other people are going to do. And it's really, it's really hard for me to hear, hear about reports. You know, I know that a lot of people have written and and are really concerned about me and my safety and about what you're going through. And, you know, I want them all to know that I'm okay and, and to understand that I'll be okay as long as the SLA demands are met and as long as the two prisoners in San Quentin are okay and as long as the FBI doesn't come in here. I mean, that's, that is my biggest worry. Um, because, I, because I think I can get out of here alive as long as they don't come busting in. And I really think you should understand that the SLA does have an interest in my returning. And, um, and, and try not to worry so much. And just do what you can. And, and I mean, I know you're doing everything. <laughs> just take care of Steve and, and uh, just hurry. <laughs> Bye. So, Patty sounds a little less shell-shocked in this communique. She even makes a little joke about having to turn over her notes mid-statement to keep reading. At the very end, she says, take care of Steve. So, this is still the old Patty Hurst, the one who was ripped away from her fiancé and is yearning to get back to her life as it was before the kidnapping. But that Patty Hurst, as we're about to find out, was about to leave the stage and be replaced by an evil twin called Tanya. But before we go there, why don't we hear a clip from the SLA's founder, whose charisma drew these revolutionaries to him in the first place and made this whole thing possible. Field Marshal Sin Q. This is unofficially known as the fourth communique of the SLA. It's Sin Q introducing himself and explaining to the general public the Symbionese Liberation Army's philosophies and the reasons for their kidnapping of Patty Hearst. I've chosen to play the whole tape, all 10 minutes of it, because we talk so much about the SLA 
and even though most of the members actually made tapes that were released to the media themselves, we never hear any of their voices, just Patty's. And Sin Q is, after all, the guy who made the whole thing possible. So as you listen to Sin Q, try to pay attention to how it makes you feel. Does it offend you? Do you find it ridiculous? Does it frighten you? Does it make you angry? Does it have the ring of truthiness? Roll the tape. Greetings to the people and fellow comrade, brothers and sisters. My name is Sin Q, and to my comrades I am known as Sin. I am a black man and a representative of black people. I hold the rank of General Field Marshal in the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. Today I have received an order from the Symbionese War Council, the Court of the People, to the effect that I am ordered to convey the following message in behalf of the SLA and to insert a tape word of comfort and verification that Patricia Campbell Hurst is alive and safe. The Symbionese Liberation Army is the federated union of military political elements of many different liberation struggles and of many different races. Our unified purpose is to liberate the oppressed peoples of this nation and to aid other oppressed people around the world in their struggle against fascist imperialism and the robbery of their freedom and homeland. Since this is the purpose and goal of the SLA, it is therefore clear to us, as it will be to all oppressed people, that our interest is to serve and defend the people and not ourselves, since the people shall always come first in our hearts and souls. The SLA has arrested the subject for the crimes that her mother and father have by their actions committed against we the American people and the oppressed people of the world. In understanding this charge, we must first understand who the Hearst are and who they serve and represent. Randolph A. Hearst is the corporate chairman of the fascist media empire of the ultra-right Hearst Corporation, which is one of the largest propaganda institutions of this present military dictatorship of the militarily armed corporate state that we now live under in this nation. The primary goal of this empire is to serve and form the necessary propaganda and smokescreen to shield the American people from seeing the realities of the corporate dictatorship which Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford represent. This network of propaganda and confusion has succeeded in hiding the truth from the people. That truth being that this nation has suffered its first military corporate coup and that the Constitution, which some of us still believe in, has been overthrown. The Fascist Hearst Corporation is composed of, firstly, a national newspaper syndicate, which includes the San Francisco Examiner and Chronicle, and others which jump from California and to as far away as New York and Philadelphia. Secondly, a magazine monopoly composed of over 13 publications, which include, for example, House Beautiful, Harper's Bazaar, 
town and country and cosmopolitan. Foodly, a TV and radio station empire across the nation with production of propaganda films for both national and international use. Fourth, ownership of vast areas of real estate in the United States and Mexico, forests, grassland, and cattle farms. All of this is directly connected to Washington and the corporate dictatorship of Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. That is to say that the Hearst Empire is one of the empires of the ruling class and whose interests serves the rich and are in direct contradiction with the interests of the people. Therefore, they are enemies of the people. Mrs. Randolph A. Hearst is a member of the University of California Board of Regents and is responsible along with others appointed by Governor Ronald Reagan for the loaning of funds and the investments of our California tax monies in corporations which have interest and do gain profit from the robbery, oppression, and genocide carried out by fascist and racist governments around the world and within the United States itself. The Regents, with the support of Mrs. Hurst, have time and time again been requested by we, the people, to not invest our money in such fascist corporations as General Motors, Westinghouse, Gulf, Standard Oil, Bank of America, and others, who have and do serve and gain profit from the oppression, robbery, and murder that is committed against black people of South Africa, where 70,000 black children a year die from malnutrition against white people of Ireland, where U.S.-trained British soldiers shoot down in the street Irish fathers and mothers as U.S.-manufactured tear gas suffocates, suffocates Irish children as their older sisters and brothers rot in British concentration camps, against the freedom of the Philippine people where United States and Marcos puppet soldiers use U.S. manufactured napalm to attempt to burn away the spirit of freedom from the hearts and souls of the poor and starving. The UC Board of Regents, one of California's largest foreign investors, supports through its investments the murder of thousands of black men, women, and children of Mozambique, Angola, and Rhodesia, murders designed to destroy the spirit that all humanity longs for. With all these crimes placed before the Board of Regents and Mrs. Hearst, with all the pleas from the people to stop supporting these corporations and the murder of thousands of men, women, and children, the Board and Mrs. Hearst did not raise one voice in protest or refused to be a party to these crimes committed against these people and those committed against the American people. Through these acts and others, the court of the people hold the Hearst family accountable for their crimes and hold that they are enemies of the people. We of the Symbionese Liberation Army hold that the Hearst Corporation and the Hearst family and the Board of Regents as well as the corporate states which they support and aid are enemies of the people. And as such, 
that the people have the legal and human right and duty to attack said enemy according to the forms of war taken by the oppressed people against any enemy or murderer and oppressor to regain their freedom and liberty and we give life to their children and people. It is therefore the directive of this court that before any form of negotiation for the release of the subject prisoner be initiated, that an action of good faith be shown on the part of the Hearst family to allow the court and the oppressed people of this world and this nation to ascertain as to the real interests and cooperative attitude of the Hearst family and in so doing show some form of repentance for the murder and suffering they have aided and profited from. And this good faith gesture is to be in the form of a token gesture to the oppressed people that they aid the corporate state in robbing and removing their rights to freedom and liberty. This gesture is to be in the form of food to the needy and the unemployed and to which the following instructions are directed to be followed to the letter. In closing, and speaking personally for myself and as a father of two children, I wish to say to Mr. Hurst and Mrs. Hurst that I, as well as the forces under my command through the authority of the court of the people, are not savage killers and madmen, and we do hold a high moral value to life. We value life very deeply and with all the spirit that we as human beings can bring forth in our hearts. But speaking as a father, I am quite willing to lose both my children if by that action I could save thousands of white, black, yellow, and red children from a life of suffering, exploitation, and murder. And I am therefore quite willing to carry out the execution of your daughter to save the life of starving men, women, and children of every race. And I am also, along with the loyal men and women of many races who love the people, quite willing to give our lives to freeing the people at any cost. And if, as you and others so naively believe, that we will lose, let it be known that even in death we will win. For the very ashes of this fascist nation will mark our very graves. You can still hear variations on the same speech being given today. It's easy to find if you know where to look. But can you imagine getting half a dozen college graduates willing to die with you in the struggle nowadays? Let alone an heiress from one of America's most prominent families? And to have the entire media hanging on your every communique? Well, that was the particular landscape of the early 70s, when the cultural and political volcano that exploded in the 1960s hadn't cooled yet, when the hawks from Vietnam were still coming home to roost, when middle American daughters like Squeaky Fromm and Sarah Jane Moore would lose themselves in the counterculture and would come out at the other end to take potshots at the president. Patty Hearst's rendezvous with the counterculture began on February 4, 1974, when the SLA bundled her into the trunk of a car and made her their hostage. But it was 59 days later, on April 3, 1974, that Patty dropped a bombshell. She starts off the communique with the usual mom, dad, but mom and dad are in for some tough love in this communique. 
Stephen Weed gets a Dear John letter. The world gets introduced to Tanya, and Tanya reveals what the energy crisis was really all about, and delivers an astoundingly current-sounding analysis about corporate technology replacing workers. Let's roll the tape. I would like to begin this statement by informing the public that I wrote what I'm about to say. It's what I feel. I've never been forced to say anything on any tape, nor have I been brainwashed, drugged, tortured, hypnotized, or in any way confused. Mom, Dad, I would like to comment on your efforts to supposedly secure my safety. The people in need giveaway was a sham. You attempted to deceive the people, the SLA, and me with statements about your concern for myself and the people. You were playing games, stalling for time, time which the FBI was using in their attempts to assassinate me and the SLA elements which guarded me. You continue to report that you did everything in your power to pave the way for negotiations for my release. Your actions have taught me a great lesson, and in a strange kind of way, I'm grateful to you. Stephen, I know that you are beginning to realize that there is no such thing as neutrality in time of war. There can be no compromise, as your experience with the FBI must have shown you. You have been harassed by the FBI because of your supposed connections with so-called radicals, and some people have even gone so far as to suggest that I arranged my own arrest. We both know what really came down that Monday night, but you don't know what's happened since then. I've changed, grown. I've become conscious and can never go back to the life we led before. What I'm saying may seem cold to you and to my old friends, but love doesn't mean the same thing to me anymore. My love has expanded as a result of my experiences to embrace all people. It's grown into an unselfish love for my comrades here in prison and on the streets. A love that comes from the knowledge that no one is free until we are all free. While I wish that you could be a comrade, I don't expect it. All I expect is that you try to understand the changes I've gone through. I have been given the choice of one, being released in a safe area, or two, joining the forces of the Sindhianese Liberation Army and fighting for my freedom and the freedom of all oppressed people. I have chosen to stay and fight. One thing which I have learned is that the corporate ruling class will do anything in their power in order to maintain their position of control over the masses, even if this means the sacrifice of one of their own. It should be obvious that people who don't even care about their own children couldn't possibly care about anyone else's children. The things which are precious to these people are their money and power, and they will never willingly surrender either. You, a corporate liar, of course will say that you don't know what I'm talking about. But I ask you then to prove it. Tell the poor and oppressed people of this nation what the corporate state is about to do. Warn black and poor people that they're about to be murdered down to the last man, woman, and child. If you're so interested in the people, why don't you tell them what the energy crisis really is? Tell them how it's nothing more than a manufactured strategy, a way of hiding industry's real intentions. Tell the people that the energy crisis is nothing more than a means to get public approval for a massive program to build nuclear power plants all over the nation. 
tell the people, tell the people that the entire corporate state is, with the aid of this massive power supply, about to totally automate the entire industrial state to the point that in the next five years, all that will be needed will be a small class of button pushers. Tell the people, Dad, that all of the lower class and at least half of the middle class will be unemployed in the next three years, and that the removal of expendable excess, the removal of unneeded people, has already started. I want you to tell the people the truth. Tell them how the law and order programs are just a means of, to remove so-called violent, meaning aware, individuals from the community in order to facilitate the controlled removal of unneeded labor forces from this country in the same way that Hitler controlled the removal of the Jews from Germany. I should have known that if you and the rest of the corporate state were willing to do this to millions of people to maintain power and to serve your needs, you would also kill me if necessary to serve those same needs. How long will it take before white people in this country understand that whatever happens to a black child happens sooner or later to a white child? How long will it be before we all understand that we must fight for our freedom? I have been given the name Tanya after a comrade who fought alongside Che in Bolivia for the people of Bolivia. I embrace the name with the determination to continue fighting with her spirit. There is no victory in half-assed attempts at revolution. I know Tanya dedicated her life to the people, fighting with total dedication and an intense desire to learn, which I will continue in the oppressed American people's revolution. All colors of string in the web of humanity yearn for freedom. I have learned how vicious the pig really is, and our comrades are teaching me to attack with even greater viciousness in the knowledge that the people will win. I send greetings to Death Row Jeff, Al Taylor, and Raymond Scott. Your concern for my safety is matched by my concern for yours. We share a common goal as revolutionaries, knowing that Comrade George lives. It is in the spirit of Tanya that I say, Patria o muerte, venceremos. The plot would thicken 12 days later, when the SLA would hold up a bank in the Sunset neighborhood of San Francisco. And one of the robbers, caught on camera wearing a wig and a beret and wielding an automatic weapon, turned out to be Tanya herself, the revolutionary formerly known as Patty Hearst. Well, this was no longer a matter of a traumatized girl making tapes to send to her parents. This was armed robbery, captured on surveillance camera. Now, there was still a chance that she was acting under duress. But the next communique would certainly make the situation a bit more complicated. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. On April 15th, my comrades and I expropriated $10,660.02 from the Sunset Branch of the Hibernia Bank. Casualties could have been avoided had the persons involved cooperated with the people's forces and kept out of the way until after our departure. I was positioned so that I could hold customers and bank personnel who were on the floor. My gun was loaded, and at no time did any of my comrades intentionally point their guns at me. Careful examination of the photographs, which were published, clearly shows this is true. Our action of April 15th forced the corporate state to help finance the revolution. In the case of expropriation, 
The difference between a criminal act and a revolutionary act is shown by what the money is used for. As with the money involved in my parents' bad faith gesture to aid the people, these funds are being used to aid the people and to ensure the survival of the people's forces in their struggle with and for the people. To the clowns who want a personal interview with me, Vincent Hallinan, Stephen Weed, and the Pig Hearst, I prefer giving it to the people in the bank. It's absurd to think that I could surface to say what I'm saying now and be allowed to freely return to my comrades. The enemy still wants me dead. I am obviously alive and well. As for being brainwashed, the idea is ridiculous to the point of being beyond belief. It's interesting the way early reports characterize me as a beautiful, intelligent liberal, while in more recent reports I'm a comely girl who has been brainwashed. The contradictions are obvious. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death, and that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. As for my ex-fiancé, I'm amazed that he thinks that the first thing that I would want to do once freed would be to rush and see him. The fact is, I don't care if I ever see him again. During the last few months, Stephen has shown himself to be a sexist, ageist pig. Not that this was a sudden change from the way he always was. It merely became blatant during the period when I was still a hostage. Frankly, Stephen is the one who sounds brainwashed. I can't believe that those weary words he uttered were from his heart. They're a mixture of FBI rhetoric and Randy's simplicity. For those people who still believe that I'm brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. I'm a soldier in the people's army. Patria o muerte, venceremos. Patty's talking about the Hibernia bank robbery there, in which she joined her comrades in an operation to liberate some greenbacks from the deep vaults of the capitalist pigs and their running dog lackeys. For some people, this was proof that Patty was one of them now, because a picture's worth a thousand words, and there she is on the surveillance tape, front and center, wearing a wig and a beret, holding an automatic weapon, and yelling out commands. But other people saw a girl being forced into an act of political theater by her kidnappers, just like they forced her to say all those things on tape. There was no proof that her gun was even loaded. And if you look at the footage, it seems like Tanya's comrades are monitoring her actions to make sure she's doing what they told her to do. That's what Patty herself would say after the whole thing was over and she was on trial. And she would also add that they had staked out the bank beforehand, and made her stand exactly where they knew the surveillance cameras would be, right on her. After the robbery, the SLA, which numbered nine total, including Tanya, decided to avoid the noose they felt to be tightening around them in their San Francisco hideout by splitting up into three cells of three and reconnoitering at a safe house in L.A., an area that Sin Q had grown up in and still had connections to, and where they could consolidate supplies and resources before splitting up again and spreading out across the country to go into deep hiding. 
That turned out to be a bad move for the SLA. We'll continue this story in part two. The TV Room is a production of Sorif TV. You can find us online at sorif.tv. That's S as in Symbionese Liberation, O-R-E, F as in Freedom Fighter. TV.